Do you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favorite pop culture affects everything you do? Then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. Every week you can listen in while we break down the latest pop culture news and dish on what new releases we can't get enough of. Whether you love movies, I'm going to tell you all about the uh, hopeful 4K re-release of Tron Legacy that happens. (laughs) (laughs) I'm right there with you. Or music. The music in this show is absolutely incredible. Or anime. And under this mask is another mask. (laughs) (laughs) You can discover your new favorites right here on The Anime Effect. Listen every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts, and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or on the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue checkmark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Coming up on this episode of White Wine Question Time. It's been like an old school flurry of tabloid headlines, Bri. Yeah. Um, but you're leaving the show. I suppose it's a lot more dramatic if they say that I'd quit and that the BBC are in turmoil. Brian Connolly, the greatest entertainer in his price range. <laughs> uh, Brian Connolly's one man show plus support. <laughs> I was all right for about a year. I thought, oh, I'd addressed it, I moved on. But then suddenly I kept getting uh, uh, anxiety and panic attacks and I, I didn't know what they were. What's wrong with me? You know, I'm only going to pick the kids up from school. What is going on here? You know, I'm the guy that at, at that time was hosting the National Lottery live. And I'm going, I can't even pick the kids up from school. And welcome to White Wine Question Time, the podcast that asks its guests three thought-provoking questions over three glasses of wine. And my guest this week is a man who's been keeping us entertained for more than 50 years in a career that spanned comedy, musicals, albums, television shows and acting. He can even boast the accolade shared by a sacred few. He has a catchphrase. Although I'm sure his wife Anne-Marie could have done without that when the midwife who was delivering their second baby announced... You guessed it. It's a puppy! It's a puppy! 
Born in 1961, he was raised in West London and studied at the Barbara Speaks Stage School from the age of 12, before landing a job at Pontins Holiday Camp as an entertainer, where he was snapped up by the end of his first season by showbiz agent. His big break came working as a warm-up man for the likes of Terry Wogan, Noel Edmonds and Kenny Everett. Bosses spotted that he was good. I mean, really good. So good, in fact, he was quickly elevated from crew to cast on shows like Five Alive, This Way Up and Life in the Palladium before landing his own Saturday night show, The Brian Connolly Show in 1992, which is where his catchphrase was born under the watchful eye of 12 million weekly viewers. Changing lanes in 1999, he returned to acting in a sitcom called Time After Time and then opposite Amanda Holden and Noddy Holder from Slade in The Grimleys, as well as working on films with Kathy Bates and Christian Bale and then stepping back into the West End to become a superstar, leading shows like Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, 9 to 5, Hairspray, Oliver and the award-winning Jolson. In 1996, after proposing dressed as a knight in shining armour on horseback, he married his long-term girlfriend Anne-Marie and they shared two grown-up daughters together, Amy and Lucy. For the last two years, we've seen him in Walford playing EastEnders' seedy bad boy Rocky, although he's now leaving the square to head back out on the road doing what he loves best, touring. He's got his third farewell tour up and on sale as we speak. So before we get into the goodbyes to Walford, let's dial him up and say hello, shall we? It's the one and only Brian Connolly. Brian Connolly, how are you, sir? I am incredibly impressed with my illustrious career. I had no idea I was that good. You were really um, good. <laughs> I've managed to survive, and I, I, I think that's a testament to how, um, how lucky I've been. And I do put it down a lot. A lot of people say, um, you know, what do they say? You need 90% luck and 10% talent, but you do need that talent. You know, you, if you can get the door open, then it's it's very much down to you. But I do count myself extremely lucky in everything. And even in lockdown, everyone's going, oh, my God, I'm out of work. But then suddenly after a month or so, I get a Zoom thing saying, um, oh, you send us one, have a chat with you. And they're chatting away. And they're, so uh, this is your character. And I went, oh, they said, this is my character. Uh, and we'd like you to do it for a year. And then I went, oh, right, well, I have to think about that. And then I put the phone down, and, my, of course, my agent was on the uh, Zoom. And then we just went, that's unbelievable, isn't it? I thought I was just having a chat. They don't even know if I can walk. I'm just <laughs> sitting there. I'm just sitting there. I, I don't know. Um, so I couldn't believe it. And then suddenly I'm there uh, in lockdown, working, would you believe, and there's no word of a lie, with tennis balls. They had tennis balls on little aerials. Uh, and to get your eye line, and then of course no one could be sort of. Of course, so you had too... to go back to almost that old school style of shooting, right? Where yeah. You... So you did the tennis ball thing. I've done that when I've shot on green screen before, and you have to pretend yeah. to look at something, and it's just a tennis ball. I know, I know. And uh, I couldn't even watch Wimbledon after it. I was like, no, you're hitting uh, actors, you know. It was uh, very surreal, but I, I was all right with it because I just joined. You know, I was like, right, oh, okay, then this is what we do. But of course, people that have been there for 20, 30 years, or God knows, were really struggling with this because this is not how we do it. But that's how lucky I am that suddenly, after a couple of months Did off. Did Steve McFadden think that the tennis ball was a body double? <laughs> they said they wanted to put little eyes on them and everything, but they tried to put like little faces on, but it never worked. It was like, no, it's too off putting. And then, of course, once we eventually got back to normal, that was very surreal because I was saying when I was working with Julian Telford, I mean, you could actually touch me. 
because there was a moment where she was shouting at me, she had to get me out of the house. And I went, well, you don't have to, I don't have to back away. You can actually push me. She was like, oh, yeah, of course we can now touch each other. You it was so weird. It was a weird sign. <laughs> Listen, of course, we're, we're talking on a week where initially we were supposed to speak a couple of days back and then it, yes. it, it was announced that you're leaving the show and then you've you've been, it's been like an old school flurry of tabloid headlines, Bri. Yeah. Um, or as 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 you might tell me, much ado about nothing. Um, but you're leaving the show. Uh, oh yeah, and of course, you know, and the papers. I suppose it's a lot more dramatic if they say that I quit and that the BBC are in turmoil and you've fallen out with everyone. Fallen out with everyone, rather than saying, "Oh, I'm leaving to pursue other, you know, sort of ventures and things like that." So I sort of took it on the chin. But that's the wonderful thing about social media. Um, and that's a great bonus because, you know, they haven't got the voice. You know, I can, which I did, put it on uh, Instagram and TikTok and say, not TikTok. Although I did post once on TikTok with my name written backwards. And I've got, if you look at it, I've got 1.3 million people watch this blimmin' TikTok of me walking out of my house and putting a bin bag in the bin. There you go, 1.3 million. I've got it on my phone. If you don't believe me, I'll show you. Is this is this the new ventures you're going to pursue? Oh, you know what I mean? Because that, my... that's more viewers than a regular episode of EastEnders these days. TikTok uh, is king. Well, I know, I know. But uh, what were we saying? You're leaving the show. You're off. You're off-ski. You're off because, of the, the, but you tell me, latest thing today is that um, they don't want people next year specifically, this Christmas coming, to yeah. go off and do panto because it's big storyline season for the 40th anniversary. But of course, mm. for a lot of you guys, you know, I think there is a misconception that soaps are brilliantly well paid. For the most part, they're not. You're paid per episode. And panto is where you go and sort of, you know, fill your larder for the rest of the year. <laughs> Especially you, because you've been doing it for 55,000 years. And oh, you, God. I, I think I it's know. fair to say you weren't a fair whack. Um, well, yes, but, you know, there's other things I do. Of course, uh, EastEnders takes up 11 months of your life, and at times it is extremely intensive. Is that the right word, intensive? Yeah, yeah it's intense. Because, yeah. I mean, like, listen, you're playing, you're playing somebody that even I can't keep up with. You arrived as Sonia's dad, then you were Nick Cotton's brother, now you're Kathy Beale's husband. Is she even I Kathy know. Beale? I don't even know anymore. No, I know, and I committed bigamy, and uh, I think I've had two heart attacks. I've only been, we've been there two and a half years. I think they, the writers look at you and go, he's got grey hair, give him a heart attack. Yeah, <laughs> but no, there's many things. But also I do, it's not just about filling my boots. I absolutely love pantomime. Um, I love everything that it involves because it's, it does involve everything, whether you're acting, pathos, comedy, singing, dancing, ad-libbing, with the kids, topical humour. They don't mind you just having a laugh. They want to see that because what, what other discipline can you, you know, a stage show, it's a musical, you've got to, do, but, you know, don't break that fourth wall. So there's all that. And last year in Woking, we took £1.4 million in four weeks because it is a big, like a West End show. It is. It is. And you do it with Gok, right? And I, and I love you and Gok. You are... The oil and water of showbiz. You're a combination that should never work, but my God, you do. That man loves the bones of you. He adores you, and you two are super funny. I mean, your downtime in between shows, I'm going to put you right up there with my favourite panto TikTokers from last year, H from Steps and Gareth Thomas. 
yeah, who yeah, played yeah. Silly Sausage and stuff like that. Well, we um, we just get uh, we've known each other for quite a few years, me and Gok. And uh, when you are in pantomime, of course, you're doing two shows every day, so it's very intense. And in between shows, you've got probably two and a half, two hours to kill. So uh, you don't go home. You can't go home. So, you you know, he'll cook me lunch. And and just he's a very wise man. And, it, and he's just uh, perpetuated and moved on to the point where if anything ever happens, I ring God and go, oh, God, what do you reckon? And he goes, oh. No, don't worry about it or whatever. So yeah, so he's um, he's a very special man in my life. I would say one of the uh, closest friends I have in show business, as well as would you believe, Glory Hannaford. See, I met Glow through uh, uh, pantomime uh, about thirty years ago, and uh, we've stayed friends ever since. And only the other day, I went to Hever Castle, and she celebrated her twenty fifth wedding anniversary. And I've done a lot for her charity. Uh, the Karen Keaton Foundation. So uh, we've um, and we've become very close, and uh, yeah, and, and and you wouldn't believe it. So it's me and Gokwan and me and Gloria Hunniford. Fascinating woman, Gloria Hunniford. Yeah. What people? I did a show um, with her for Radio Two years ago called Paper Cuts, and Paper Cuts was a show that I used to do where I walk somebody through their life via their headlines, and I don't think people realise quite the the trailblazer that she was and remains. Mm-hmm. You know, the reason we had female toilets at Radio 2 was because of Gloria. She was the first female DJ in the building. There was nowhere for her to go and spend a penny. Isn't that amazing? She didn't become famous until she was 40. She was an Avon lady. Well, do you know what? I didn't know that. I didn't know that. An Avon lady. She was an Avon lady that would host Avon parties and go door to door. All the hustle that you need for a chat show. So when she moved in to broadcasting, she already had two children. You know, she was, she'd lived a life. So everything that Gloria's pretty much achieved, you're talking about mid-30s onwards, really. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, a remarkable lesson for us all in your, it's never too late. Absolutely, and and but uh, what a, a kind and wonderful woman, and and all the work she's done and raised so much money for cancer, uh, it's phenomenal. And I'm surprised she's she's not got any titles uh, either in front or behind her name, you know. Yeah, I am actually. I know where everything she's ever done. I don't know it's because she's Irish. I don't know can they dish him out for her? well. Bob Gildor's got one. He's Sir Bob, but he's an honorary. I wonder if that's what that's all about. But anyway. Surely it's a, listen between us. We can hustle something up. I'm sure. I think so. Let's start. Let's start a hashtag. Yeah, give Gloria an OBE one boiled egg. <laughs> But listen, it's not just Panto that is going to see you back in theatres this year. You're doing another farewell tour. You're doing more farewell tours than bloody Elton John. Well, that's what it's called, Brian's third farewell tour uh, <laughs> to date. Is it like an Irish goodbye where you can never say goodbye? You just keep going, bye-bye, 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 bye-bye. Yeah. I, was, I had a few ideas. It was that, uh, or Brian Connolly, the greatest entertainer in his price range. <laughs> say that again. Brian Connolly, the greatest entertainer in his price range. <laughs> Or Brian Connolly's one-man show plus support. <laughs> so that was it. That's what, I think I prefer that one, actually, out of all of them. But anyway, we went with Brian's third farewell tour. And uh, no, it's a laugh. And yeah, um, the odd sort of weekend I've done uh, the, the gigs, and I just said to my management, I love it so much. And what has happened as well, um, the, uh, another, another reason I want to do it, is, uh, is that I'm doing it with my daughter. Lucy, one of my daughters, and Lucy is a performer, 
and she loves um, uh, she likes doing improv and she does comedy and she's only 21 and whenever she's doing a gig she's always the youngest person on the bill she's really good she and, is like, uh, I've had a look at her insta and oh, she sings like a little bird, doesn't she? She does, and and that's what she wanted to pursue. I said, but you got if you can do the comedy loose, you know, it's supply and demand. You know, there's not many young female, uh, well, uh, comedians of that age. No, but actually, when you look at um, the similarities between you two and then Kate mm. Robbins and Emily attack mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, the apples never fall far from the tree, do they? No, the no, talent no. that's lovely. Yeah, and I think uh, comedy has opened all the doors for me. You know, people always go, "Oh, you know, they, you know." And it, when you when you say, "Oh, I act, I sing," but when you say, "Oh, yeah, I do comedy," they go, "Oh, God, no! I could never do that. I could never go." And I've I've always said to my daughter Luce, I said, "You know, I suffer from nerves, but you've got to remember, nerves keep normal people away from our jobs. You have to battle through that." To get to the other side and it's only the build-up it's only you know as you wait in the wings or maybe even the day before but when you're out there and in that moment um it normally all comes together and i know when the last gig she done with a lot of other acts on she was very nervous but when she went out there she absolutely nailed it and i said that's what you've got to hang on to uh but yeah it is um for a lot of people uh quite terrifying but i've grown up with it and it's been my life for so long. I mean, God, it really has been your life. You're, you know, I mean, obviously, I, I know your brother very well, who is hands down, I would say, one of the best in the business. He's a floor manager. He runs the biggest shows yep. on telly. Is he's got a bigger smile than you? He's, I mean, his smile yeah, is I just know. beaming. He's a lovely man. And your sister as well. She went into costume. Yeah, costume and the BBC and. Um... And she's worked in getting the right demographic for a studio audience where, of course, you know, you know, they might be of a certain age. So she will make sure that there's uh, 400 people there that are the right demographic. So she does. She sorts out all that as well. So your dad, you know, the, the times that you spent, dad, so your dad would take you into work because on a Sunday you'd get a discounted Sunday lunch. At, was it Elstree Studios? Yeah. Uh, no, it was the BBC White City because my father was worked at the BBC. So my father was a rigor supervisor, which meant he would do all the outside broadcasts. I am looking at a picture of my dad. I'm going to get it for you. Aww. Here it is. Uh, there's my dad. Uh, he's prime. And that's actually, he's doing like Ski Sunday there. So he's obviously, you know. That does look good. Oh, God, him. Ski Sunday, that takes you back. That's, that's a shot of yeah, the 80s yeah, yeah. right there. I think... I think I am obviously older than him now. So in that photo, yeah, you can tell the grey hair and everything else. I think we really do look like that. But um, so he worked at the Beeb. He also was a cab driver. So for 10 years of his life, he was a cabbie. Then he went to the Beeb for 25, but he always kept his badge going. Then he went back to cabin. But those 25 years, we will go and see all the shows um, and things like that. And, so you would, uh, like, you would get tickets to go and sit in the audience. I mean, it was... It was a bit of a recreational playground for you and Alan and your sister. Yeah, well, of course. And uh, yes, on Sundays we would go to White City because, um, yeah, yeah, being uh, working at the Beeb, you, you would get uh, staff prices. So we'd all sit there and have a Sunday dinner. But um, yeah, no, he, uh, and he was also a very good opera singer, my dad. He never had the confidence to go professional. And uh, as a, uh, a child, I always remember listening to the records as a very small child. Uh, when we used to live in Kilburn, in a big block of flats, and uh, he'd have the old record player on. And then the joke was, I'd only be about three, 
uh, and everyone will, uh, my dad will go, yeah, go sing for Nan and Granddad and all that. And as a small child, because all I've listened to is these opera songs, I've got, Hilly Malikwa, La Pilla, and everywhere, I would just blow everyone away. There's little kids singing opera. Um, and uh, But that was my first foray into, uh, you know, into sort of showbiz. Um, but yeah, we were very lucky. So it all became acceptable being in a studio, understanding how a studio works. And, uh, and it must have rubbed off on us. It must have. I mean, what came first? The exposure to that environment or the Barbara Speaks stage school from the age of 12? Well, I think... Um, I always say I was born to sing and everything else I learned. Uh, my singing was, uh, uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a God-given talent. You know, you can't really work on it. It's either there or it's not. And so the singing was there. But I'm, I'm dyslexic. So when I was a kid at school, I was in the remedial class and it wasn't recognised. That's really tough, actually. You look at, I mean, the support children get now, but you were just fundamentally Fit. sidelined as difficult, troublesome, hard to teach, just, you know. Yeah, Brian Connolly will persist in being the joke of the class, will not get on with this work. I couldn't keep up with anyone. It wasn't recognised. I was put, I was just known as stupid, you know, and thick and not being able to concentrate. Um, and, but this one thing I could do was sing, and whether it be a school production or a talent show, I would go out there and that was my world and that's where I would shine. Uh, but, it, 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 you know, just generally keeping up with maths and English and things like that. And I, I ironically now, I do a load of writing. I'm always sort of writing stuff and working on stuff. But I just write phonetically. But in, your da in the day, if you couldn't spell properly, that was it. Oh, he's not making an effort. He's just thick. So I had to battle through that. But that may be what I am. And then i done a, a, a musical uh, at school. Uh, Yeoman of the Guard and uh, my mum and dad went to the parents evening and uh, they said we don't know what to do with Brian he's sort of focusing on this but he's always messing about and the music teacher said well you know what I want tickets to his first television series and they went what he said he's got something and you have to nurture that take him out of this place he's a big fish in a small pond go and put him into a stage school uh, where he'll work and meet and other people that are want to perform and want to be in that business and he did and I've never done any work at state school I worked all the time because there's only four so you know imagine the early 70s there's four state schools so that's the only place they dip in to get kids uh, all the kids in Fagin's gang in Oliver the movie Jack Wilde and everyone all went to Barbara Speak state wow. school if you wanted a cheeky cockney lad you went to Barbara Speak Stage School. That's where you get them from. I was the only kid in the 70s who would have my hair cut. I, I thought, yeah, I'll do it. Um, so any period bit, I would be quite happy to have it all shaved up because it was a long hair era. And if you're 13, you don't want to walk around with a stupid sh shaved at the back haircut. But anything 1940s or any sort of period bit. So consequently, I worked even more. And so, yeah, I just worked all my life. I got my equity card when I was 12. Yeah. Um, because you get, uh, you get a provisional one. So I got that. So I was a professional performer. And I'm 62, and I've done it. So I've done it for 50 years. This business. This is, this is a big year for you, right? 50 years of working. I know. I'm minted. I've got to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> you must be knackered. 
<laughs> no, I've loved every minute of it, every different genre. And that's where I am, and that's where I am with EastEnders. Yeah, I made a decision like, um, because you're not allowed to do anything else, I just thought, well, you know what? You know, I'm not getting any younger. There's a few other things I like to do. Even experience, uh, you know, going on a, getting in a camper van and going through New Zealand or things like that, stuff that I've never, ever done, you know, and our kids have uh, left at home now. You know, everything's paid for, and I just thought, ah, you know, it is very full on. Because what you have with these senders is, um, uh, is a lot of homework. When you're there, that's the fun bit because you've all got it in your belt, under your belt. You've you've worked on it over the weekend. You know what you're going to do, but always constantly there's stuff you've got to learn. You've got to get that under your belt. You've got to get that. So when you are in the car making your way there or coming home or sitting in here and my wife goes, oh, we're going to watch that film. I go, no, I've got to go in the other room and look at these words. Um, so that is a, a constant thing. Uh, you never sort of get away from it. Even when you're on holiday, you're going, oh, what's the next block of scripts? Because we are doing four episodes a week. That is a lot of content. Well, with that in mind, I'd like to go to my first question because it's all about big farewells and a funeral. I want you to imagine that you are looking down at the pulpit at your own funeral. And I want to know who you want on that pulpit and what stories you want them to tell that best represent you. How do you want your life to flash before people's eyes as they say farewell? Oh, dear. Is this a question that you give everyone? No, this is... Well, you're doing a farewell tour and the chances are you're going to cark it on Christmas Day. I thought, what can I do with that? That's what I came up with. Uh, yeah, what do I want? What do I want? I don't know. I think Gok would be lovely getting up because he'd just have a laugh. What's the story that you would like Gok to tell? The one that best kind of holds up a mirror to your friendship, your unlikely friendship? Uh, God, don't I get all emotional when I start thinking about this uh, or what he might say or what he would do? Um, I, uh, I think the fun we had on stage and uh, I remember when we first, in the first week, he used to keep standing in the wings with the script going, right, right, right. I kept going, no, 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 don't worry about it. Don't worry. He goes, no, no, I've got to get that. I said, listen, just go out there and have fun. That's what they want. They want us to have fun. Let's have some fun. Throw stuff at me. I'll throw stuff back. And then it just grew from that. And, uh, and, and, and that, that, that fun that we had, but I, I don't know. I, I mean, I just, I've enjoyed everything in my life and I've had a lot of fun and I, I would like to think I made a few people happy along the way and I always remember that P.T. Barnum one, the, the noblest art is that of making others happy and and that's what I enjoy um, and I just, uh, I would hope that he says, you know what, he made a lot of people happy and that would be it. I've, I've had a wonderful life. I think you taught him a lot a as well, though, Bri. I think, I think just teaching him to throw away the book for a start. Go off book, come out, do that. Yeah. I think, you know, think about maybe some of the ways in which you've left your handprint on people. Well, you see, I don't, my daughters always go, someone pays me a compliment, I always flip it off. Yeah. You know, I'm not very good. I'm not very good with compliments, you know. And uh, so to think of someone saying something endearing about me, is um, a quite emotional for me, and also uh, 
something I, I, I just can't imagine, you know. Uh, but where would someone best describe? What would Alan say you know, as he uh, as he organised the floor at your funeral? And he'd be good at that, wouldn't he? Oh Let's my god, he would run like a dream. He'd have the headphones. Yes, of course. He'd have a clipboard. Without. I think he would just say he was proud of me. Yeah. You know, and uh, and I'm proud of him and everything he's done, and of course my sister as well, Lynn. You know, but me and Al, obviously, uh, he's much younger than me. He's 13 years younger, and he was like, I was like, uh, you know, we weren't like, you know, simply I was like this older brother that just looked after him and kept an eye on him. And yes, right at that very early stage when I was doing um, uh, a sitcom called Time After Time, I got him a job as a runner. And that's how it all started for him in this career and him meeting Joe and Sam and Lily, his kids and everything else. So uh, I was very much part of that, uh, you know, that journey that he's had in television right at the beginning. I mean, I, I didn't in any way uh, structure any other sort of uh, path for him, but I opened the door at the beginning. It was you that got him over the fence. And in your yeah. instance, in your case, it was your dad that got you over the fence, wasn't it? He, got, he was the one that got yeah, you into yeah, the room. Yeah. And you, you brought yeah. Alan into the room and he had a chance yeah. to look around and see where he fitted in, right? And, I mean, God, does yeah. he ever. He's great. I uh, said to him, because he was working and he had a really good, he was part, of, he worked at Marks and Spencer's, but head of the store department. So he would make sure all the goods are coming in and he was only 21. And I said, are you really enjoying this? And he went, nah, nah, nah. I said, you know what? If I wasn't doing what I was doing, I would love to be a floor manager. I would love to be in charge of that room and uh, and take that responsibility on. And, uh, and yeah, and he, he did it, you know, and he does cram and the one that always blows people away, he does RuPaul, he's best friends with RuPaul. Um, all of you know, Ant and like, Dex shows. Yeah, all of Ant and Dex. So, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, of course, we, I was work, doing the NTAs and he was, he was there, up, you know, on the stage. And, uh, and uh, yeah, we are really proud, but we really are a close family as well. We all get together. We all get together at Christmas. We do a lip sync battle Christmas Day, which yeah. is taken extremely seriously <laughs> uh, because uh, we all have props. We all rehearse it. We all have costumes. Last year, we I done Mary. We done Mary Poppins. And my wife and I was, you know, Bert, the Dick Van Dyke role. You were done Maria's uh, Bert. Yeah, yeah. We and who were you, Mary? Like yeah, no, other way round, of course. I was, but, but what did he do? Uh, Pocahontas. Uh, he done that one, Pocahontas. <laughs> oh, God, you know, with Sam in the little uh, little dress and that. Uh, but uh, yeah, no, we were we were a very close family. I find it very difficult to answer that question, okay? Because um, I don't I don't know what uh, you know. I do like. Uh, uh, what because I played P.T. Barnum and whenever like when Paul O'Grady passed away or you know all these legends I always quote that uh, they say the noblest art is that of making others happy mm. and uh, I've always felt that um, that I'm very proud that that's something I do and something that I truly enjoy and when you get out there you know it's great doing EastEnders but a live crowd, man, is that is where you are in the moment and you are watching them rock. I don't want polite laughter. I want them getting their hankies out. I want them crying with laughter. And that, I think, has uh, sustained it for me because, you know, I've 
I've always put a lot of work into being out there like one way or another, you know. Uh, and it comes from the heart. I love it. You do, don't you? What about, let's think about who's going to take to this pulpit at your funeral. What would your agent say about you? Well, it depends. Depends which one. Because <laughs> I've, I've had a few. Uh... You've kissed a few agent frogs, have you? Yeah. Listen, once again, you know, like, I'm not worried about my career. I just hope people say, hey, he was kind. I, I had to go. To, I went to a hospice only t- two days ago, uh, Windsor, Windsor Hospice for a friend, and I had the best time ever. Went round, met everyone, and I always come in every room and go, "Hi, I'm famous. Touch me, rub my body, baby. Hi, <laughs> I'm famous. You know." And I just diffuse it and just have a laugh with them and gently sort of rib them. And uh, I re- walked away going, "Cool, what a wonderful time I had there." I think as I've got older, I appreciate how important it is to just give a bit back. And you know, I'm talking to people there that actually haven't got long. And all of them say, you know, and this is another reason I'm, move, I'm moving on. All of them say, don't think any of it's going to last forever. Yeah. This poor guy, he was there, he just retired, and his wife had just passed away. And he said, don't, don't, uh, don't waste any time. Don't keep putting off. Oh, I'm going to do that next year. I'm going to do that. Oh, once I've done that. And, uh. And I thought that was quite ironic because that was happening. And then in the papers, it was going, oh, he's kicked off and he's going to leave. But it really sort of uh, put a perspective on, yes, what is important. And, uh, uh, yeah, what is important. And what is important is family and and it's having a laugh. You know, I, and I'm very lucky. I can actually have a laugh sober. Yeah, because you're sober. I don't, yeah. How, I don't long have you, how long have you been sober now? I I give up uh, nineteen years. Ago. Bloody hell! I know it'll be uh, twenty years in February. I mean, it was just when my father died, and my father, when he died, hit me like a ton of bricks. And uh, I was all right for about a year. I thought oh, I'd addressed it. I've moved on, but then suddenly I kept getting uh, anxiety and panic attacks, and I I didn't know what they were. What's wrong with me? I'm sort of. Uh, you know, I'm only going to pick the kids up from school. What is going on here? You know, I'm the guy that at that time was hosting the National Lottery Live. And I'm going, I can't even pick the kids up from school. What's going on? Um, and I was self-medicating with the alcohol because he had died and I was never an alky, but it had crept up and up and up. So then I went to a psychiatrist and I said, listen, I will do anything to feel better. He said, well, you should try and give up the alcohol. <laughs> and I went, yeah, but I'm going on holiday to Antigua, and it's all inclusive. So when I come back, I'm going to really focus on on giving up. And he went, yeah, but won't there always be a holiday? Won't there always be a weekend, a birthday party, a pub on the corner? Yeah. And I went, I said, that's why I'm paying you the big bucks. Yep, you're right. And then over a period of time, it didn't like stop straight away, but over the next six months of talking to him and backing away and then going to a party and and sort of moaning at him that everyone's having a good time except me because they're all drinking. And then we go, well, why? why? Why do you think they're having a good time and you can't? And all these sort of things that we'd analyse. And then in the end, I started coming out the other side and going, do you know what I feel? I'm on an even keel. I just feel so better, so brighter. And then uh, I think it was my brother. He came to see me work and he said, Brian, I have never seen you that good. You were unbelievable. And I suddenly realised I've got a clear head. 
I'm in the moment. Uh, I don't have these spikes of when I'm sort of up there and down. And then he said to me, the psychiatrist said, you know, when you drink, there's only really a small window where it feels really good. And then you'll tip over the other side. And, and do you really want that little window or do you want like a good day? Yeah. And that really made sense as well, you know. Well, the math speaks for itself then, doesn't it? Yes, yeah. God, that's a really good way of putting this. So, you know, when, when you reached that kind of decision to go sober, mm-hmm. I mean, when you sat down and discussed it with, like, Anne-Marie, for example, did she say, oh, thank God, about time? Or was it just you that was having a hard time with it? Was it had it had it seeped into family life? Like, oh, she's like, oh, bloody hell. She was, um, she was quite upset. She goes, I've missed my drinking partner. <laughs> So super supportive then. <laughs> uh, I know, I know. Uh, but no, uh, the, I was never an alcoholic, uh, but it just got in the way. It just got in the way of every night, you know, just to sleep. I'll, I'll go, right, I'll go have a couple of drinks, a few Jim Beam, I like Jim Beam and ginger ale, a uh, bottle of wine, you know, and it just crept up and up to, there was no time I couldn't have a drink in the evening you know yeah. even if I was working the next day oh I've got to have a few drinks because it helps me sleep that's it that's what it does you know and then when I went to psychiatrist uh, I went oh, yeah but it helps me sleep you know and I always need about at least eight nine hours he said yeah but if you don't drink you won't need as much sleep because you won't have to recover yeah. I went oh yeah <laughs> but um you know I was never that bad, but maybe it was you something know, you that, just but, needed as you came to terms with your dad's passing you know it's, it's... oh without a doubt I was so close to him and you know it was a big you know a uh, big hit uh because he I, I'm two years older than when my dad passed yeah I was gonna away. say he was he a was very 59. young man I know and I can see now because 20 years ago when I was 25 now when I looked at you know oh he's an old man he's much older you know but never wanted him to go but felt that he had lived a life and now I'm 62 and I'm thinking no I've still got a lot in me I think do you think that sharpens things like your decision to step away from EastEnders because you go actually I'm two years here I'm, I'm here I'm already two years ahead of my dad and life is short yeah I just I just want to do other things that's the honest truth it's not just paying the line it's it's other stuff because when you are locked into it you can't do anything else not really even at weekends uh you're committed you're like a, a, a you're the like a, the emergency services of acting where you you know you get phone call right i've got to go in someone's ill i have to go in today you know uh where you you have your week mapped out but you could be called at any point so uh to be in that position where now right what should i do now you know it's it's very exciting and you know i've got a book as well you know, but not uh, that's that I'm that we're working on that I, I hope to sort of bring out next year. But that's not why I'm going. There's a lot of things, but I think that's a very good point that it has. You know, yeah, I'm two years older than when my dad died, and why don't you go but go out there and see what else? Whenever I've given anything up, um, always something. You know, that's where I'm so lucky. But just doors have opened and I've suddenly gone into this for a while. I've gone there. I've never done anything for three years and that's how long I will be in. I've been in East Enders. Yeah. Also, I've never gone back to anything either. So just a note there. Yeah. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. 
Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Time for your next question. Your third farewell tour is about to get underway. What have been your hardest goodbyes in life? Be it people, situations, chapters. Over to you. You do ask some really full-on questions here, Kate. You know, it's like, whoa, where I have to really think back. Um, I mean, obviously, loved ones, yeah, my dad and, you know, some friends along the way and, and that. Uh, but sort of show-wise, uh, they've all been tough, uh, you know, one way or another. You know, uh, I was very sad when I, I said goodbye to Barnum uh, when we were, we'd done that for a year. You know, all these shows are normally a year. Barnum. Barnum, uh, talk to me know, about Barnum, because Barnum required an awful lot of you that you would never had to give before. You had to learn... Um, to tightrope walk, yeah. <laughs> fiery, uh, juggle, uh, stilt walk. Uh, but the, the, the tightrope, that was full on. You're like that a bougie Billy really, Smart. Uh, I know. It was seven foot up, uh, you know, so you could still hurt yourself. Um, and uh, the understudy had to go on one day and broke his foot. And then suddenly, every time I got up there, everyone sort of treated it with a little bit more respect, uh, as I did. Uh, but learning that and, uh, and thinking, oh, my God, you know, I think I was in my 50s. Well, I was just nearly 50 and thinking, what am I doing, Brian? But it was for Sir Cameron McIntosh uh, and, and to play P.T. Barnum. And uh, is is great because that's the first show I saw in the West End. I saw Michael Crawford at the Victoria Palace playing Barnum. Did you? Uh, and you, yeah. And you know, when you do stuff for Sir Cameron, it's Division One. It's like when I played Fagin in Oliver. That was a big thing for me uh, to do that. Uh, and I'll tell you why, because I had a real knockback when I was at school. You'll love this. So this, my <laughs> so. So I did get to play Fagin uh, in the show. But anyway, I'm about 12 years old. 
and I'm at stage school, and then what would happen at stage school is um, Miss Speak would come out ahead uh, of the school and she'd sort of hand out these little tickets saying, right, uh, you've got auditions tomorrow, audition this way, you've got to be in it at three o'clock, right, David, you're going, Stephen, it's for uh, Oliver, that's right, you're going, you're going, and it, they're coming around to me and I'm thinking, oh, she's about to say I can go because uh, it's you've got to sing, and if it was a singing audition, I pretty much would always go, and she went, you're going, Stephen, um, no, you're not going, Brian, you're going, and I go, Miss Speak, why don't I go, she said, because you're fat, <laughs> you, you can't have a fat kid singing food, glorious food, it's not going to work. Different times, Bri. I know, I know. I went home. <laughs> Were you a bit, look, you know, I heavy? Was, I was chubby. I was chubby. I weren't fat, fat, but I was chubby for a time, you know. But anyway, uh, I went home and my mum and dad said, do you have a good day to school? I said, yeah, but Miss Speak, she's handing out auditions for Oliver. And uh, they, she said, I can't do it because I'm fat. And you can't have, can't have fat kids singing food, glorious food. And my mum and dad went, yeah. And that was it. They just, was it. yeah, cool. She's right. But I have to say, those sort of things toughened you up. You know, in this world and in this business where you're, it's full of rejection and full of critics and full of everyone, you know, having a pop, you know, uh, it toughens you up. And uh, I must say, you know, it was just, yeah, yeah, she's right. And she was. You was, know, it, I mean, was it a hard goodbye saying goodbye to the Barbara Speak stage school? Because it, it was family for you by that point. You, you know, you were still stu- you were studying, but you'd never stopped working. You had a CV by the time you were pulling on a blue coat at Pontins for a minute. Um, yeah. You know, that must have been quite a hard goodbye because it's hello real world, hello cruel world, isn't it? Yeah, yes. And of course, there was a, a very a, a big anxiety there. And I, I think I always worried about that. I always worried when I was a kid that I would be penniless and, and just, uh, you know, sleeping uh, under a cardboard box, you know. Uh, I always uh, really worried because i that's all I had was uh, my singing and my ability at the time to, in an amateurish way, you know, to make people laugh. Uh, and all I wanted to do was just earn a living, if I could just earn a living at this. Uh, and that was it. That was my uh, mantra. And I never, uh, it was never about being famous. He said, can I just earn a living at this? Can I just, and then be in a blue coat. And then suddenly I'm a blue coat. And then I'm a compare in a nightclub. Then I'm in a band. I'm in a comedy band. Then I go solo. And then it was just like, wow, bad, bad. And I just, uh, was just, that's why I put it so much down to luck, you know, that suddenly that door, you know, and there and there. And it was in the band. Was the band where you got kind of not a big break, but somebody saw that mm. there was there was more to you? Is is that what yes. led to the warm up work, which ultimately led to the telly work? Yeah, yeah. Um, I uh, I was in this band, Tom Foolery, who, of course, now if you work in the clubs or anything, not that there are any, they were uh, they're tribute bands now. They you know someone to do the Queen or ABBA and all that. But in my day, they were comedy show bands like. The Black Abbots, like the Grumbleweeds, you know, like uh, just the Rockin' Berries. So I was in Tom Fury, which was wonderful because I'm a young man. I'm not even 21 yet. I'm still sort of just uh, about 18, 19, doing the clubs with this band, fronting this band. And, of course, uh, we would do a little bit of music. Then we'd do a little uh, 
uh, a bit of Tommy Cooper or I do a bit of Elvis or and just sort of little impressions, but then back off and then once again the band would sing. So I had this wonderful uh, net to sort of protect me. Uh, and uh, what was the question? How did it lead to an opportunity for you to get into big telly studios with big stars? Yeah, well, oh, yeah, so we... Um, if you really want to know the true story, we were, we had an accident in the car and uh, in our van, and uh, we were really in a bad way. And our, uh, not physically, but the van was written off, and it was a, a, a full-on accident. Anyway, we were uh, we suddenly um, were in this position like, oh my god, what we're going to do? So our drummer went, you know what? I'm going to one of the top agents in this country, and I'm going to tell him that we're the best. And he did. And this agency. And his name escapes me. But anyway, couldn't believe this guy's front, you know, this Scott, the drummer. And, uh, and they gave us some work. And then suddenly we got, um, because we, he made this sort of bold decision, we now got a proper agent. And we're doing uh, tours with Tammy Burnett. Suddenly they went, oh, they're quite good. Johnny Mathis, the Nolans, uh, Jack Jones. So all these sort of um, nice little tours and we can support them. And uh, then... I said I was leaving, and then this manager of the band said, "If you, I don't, I won't look after the guys. I really want to look after you and nurture you." So that's how that came about. Then, very briefly, I then go and do some telly, and I'm rubbish. I'm no good at it. What? Uh, I'm get too, well. I get too anxious, and I blow it all, and I don't really know how to structure my act at that point to do a nice five-minute spot or you know a bit longer. Um, so we made the bold decision. My agent said, right, I want you now to take a step back and I want you to do warm-ups. You see, another thing you've got to remember is we all know how a television studio works now. You go on YouTube, you can go on this. Then we didn't. It was like the fourth wall. So you had your cameras here. This was the show. You never knew how it all worked mm. and clicked together and how a show and how it's edited and, you know, uh, things like that and, and how to work a camera rather than the audience. So then I started, I took a step back and I'd done warm-ups and I'd done Wogan and I'd done No Lemons and I'd done, uh, but uh, importantly, I used to do all Kenny Everett's. When he moved to the BBC, he really liked me and I'd done all of Kenny Everett's shows there. And he was, and I, learned so I mean, much. he was such a, a comedy genius. I mean, everyone remembers him for his radio work, but actually he really moved the dial didn't he 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 changed yes. things do you remember it was mad it was off the wall it was it was so uh it just wasn't set and i loved that i really it did was so different uh, take that on board and and and, and, look, and how he worked the studio crowd you know beforehand and how he played the cameras and uh <clears throat> just how nice he was he was a lovely man and he didn't have to invite me but he would all invite me to there they had a small meal for the cast and that and uh, he said no i'd like you to come along you know and i just thought that was lovely but he uh, uh yeah and then suddenly i'm doing more telly again now but do, do you not think that when you look back right right it was so important to, to spend that time as supporting cast to kenny everett yes you know terry wogan yeah uh, Noel Edmonds, yeah. because it was a chance to see other people at work, which you could then decide which parts of that you're going to take on board for yourself. Do you think ultimately it was the making of you? Yes, oh, without a doubt, uh, because um, it's so clinical a studio. It's so, you know, it's not, you know, 
uh, yeah, it is, and and sometimes they can be a bit stuffy and audience. Suddenly, I I do three, two, one. After after I've sort of done all the t this with Kenny and everything, and I'm on the show three, two, one, and of course it's pre-recorded, and I come out and I do my first bit, and it doesn't go that well. And then I sort of say, now listen, you lot, this might be a night out for you, but it's, it's my career on the line here. This is a big moment for me, so I want you to be happy. I want you to enjoy it. All right, love. And then suddenly I do a couple of minutes where I'm just having fun with them. Then I go, right, I'm going to walk off again and do this. So I do my entrance again. Now, Ted had already introduced me. I'd, I'd stopped the show, but I knew how to tell you worked, and I knew how important it was to whip that crowd up before, so they all knew me now. I wasn't this uh, stranger that was going to come on and make them laugh. I've now done a couple of minutes with them. Go on, come back on, and I blitzed them because I'm relaxed, they were relaxed. But all this I would never have got a grip of if I hadn't seen Kenny and everyone else work and, and would have been like, huh? And, uh, and, and that was like a real launching pad for me and, and doing, uh, and then doing live from, they used to have live from the Palladium, live from Her Majesty's with Jimmy Tarbuck and, and those, that could define, you had one good spot on there and that was it. You didn't stop working. Uh, and of course, in that era, we had 10 weeks of clubs, you had three months of pantomime, you had six months. I'd done six months with Cannon Abort, the Winter Gardens, hold three and a half thousand people, and I was out there every night wow. uh, for six months in Blackpool. Blackpool could last between five and six months. So there was all this work and all Different this. Different uh, times, isn't it? I mean, that's just gone now. And we talk about soaps having to reconfigure what they are. I mean, it's been ever thus, hasn't it? That, you know, the landscape changes. It's just how do you remain relevant as part of it? Yeah, you just move move around. You know, I, I, I've always loved the act. I do pantomime. I've, I've done so many shows in the West End and on tour. And... Uh, and now, uh, you know, and, and acting, you know, I've even done five films. I've even worked with Christian Bale. I know you have. And Kathy Bates. I know. So, uh, I know it's been such uh, uh, But you know what? Without the goodbyes, you could never have said hello to opportunities like those. Mm. So sometimes walking mm. away from something or saying goodbye to something or just, just popping a lid on it for a moment, it's really important because otherwise, how else do you find an opportunity to go and you know by the time you moved into musical theatre in the eyes of the audience you were coming to it new but actually this was what you'd always done singing was your thing and then we all watch you on the Brian Connolly show and you're the guy with the catchphrase and you know you've got all these personas and characters and then we all go bloody hell he can sing like it was a revelation yeah, yeah, yeah. I know it's like um, with the actor, oh, I didn't know he could act. It's all an act. You know, when you're standing there, it's an, you know, as a comedian, it's an act. You're not really like that and that big. It may be an extension of who you are. But, uh, yeah, uh, no, I've always liked surprising people, but I've always been very lucky that, you know, I've managed to sort of diversify, and I, I've told my daughter that, you know, you've got to have your fingers in a lot of pies. The reason I've been able to survive is, yes, I, I, the bottom line is, if you give me a microphone, I can stand on stage for maybe an hour and 20 minutes and make people laugh on my own, just with a mic. And that is the one thing that has always put me in good stead. Let's talk then about changing lanes in an industry that doesn't like people to change lanes. So are you ready for your third and final question? I would like that very much, Kate. Bring it on. How do you transition from one medium to another and overcome 
the obstacles that are put in your way, the naysayers, the reticence, what do you do to get past those people so that you are a revelation in musical theatre that, oh my God, he can act. Have you seen him in time after time? Oh, he's great on the Grimleys with Noddy Holder and Amanda Holden. You know, all of those moments must have come with a backroom struggle. I've, I've always had variety comedian. That's always been my tag. People always think that's, oh, you know, it's like... Uh, Barnum and things like that. It was quite, you know, quite intense. There was a lot of crying. You know, his wife dies and things like this. And and, and people are always surprised with with all that. And I quite like that now, and I'm used to that. But it's trying to convince people that, you know, whether it be a producer or, or uh, you know, of a, uh, you know, like a dark drama or something like that, that I am you know, confident of doing that, you know, it's just trying to convince them all. And then when you do it, because you're coming in as the underdog, you've just got to try harder and nail it better than anyone else out there. You've got to know your lines better than anyone else, you know. I know it's a, a, a line for the gym, but I've always kept that right from this, is that no sweat, no glory, no pain, no gain. You know, you've, you, you've got to put the time in. And then sometimes I will sit there, like even in these centres, where I, go, oh, I just want to go to bed. They go, no, 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 you've got to do this. You've got to get this in your head because you may get three goes at it tomorrow. So you, this has got to get going. Uh, I've, um, it's, it's hard work. That's what it is. You know, you if you're playing Barnum or, you know, like I, play, I was in Hairspray, there's Jolson, there's uh, when I was in Me and My Girl, uh, the, one of the first things I've done, there's a four-minute tap routine. I remember seeing Robert Lindsay doing it and thinking, oh, that's, uh, you know, and there was talk of me doing it. I thought, oh, yeah, I'll do that, I'll do that. But suddenly this tap routine coming, and I went, oh, my God. Hard. And, you know, it was, but I spent six weeks every day at, um, uh, the, you know, the dance place. Pineapple? That's it. Every Were you day. there? Under the with Louis Spence on reception. Yeah, yeah, he was. He was then. You know, bloody hell, yeah. Um, he was mad. Uh, but yeah, I was there every day. Obviously not Sundays. And then my leading lady walked in. She was trained in musical theatre, and uh, it took her two days to learn this thing. But um, you know, and, and for me, it's well, I know what it is, right? Because when I when I, um, this is me getting very deep, when I, uh, when my dad died and I had a bit of uh, help from a psychiatrist called Professor Maurice Lipsidge, who is, used to be Princess Diana, psychiatrist, at the same time I was there, she was going, I didn't even know this, he never spoke about it, obviously it was only in a documentary at a later date that I went, oh my God, I used to see him. But um, um, I was telling him a story that I'd read about Elton John. And uh, Elton John was uh, uh, in therapy and he said uh, he said to the therapist, he said, what am I shouting out to the world? He said, uh, he said what, what am I, what is my soul shouting out to the world? And he's shouting out, he said, well, what you're shouting out is, do you love me now, Dad? Do you love me now? You know, when he's on stage in front of millions, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands, do you love me now, Dad? Because he had a rough time with his yeah. dad. So I said, I read this. And I said, what am I shouting out to the world? And the psychiatrist said, you're shouting out, I'm not thick. And that's it. And that absolutely floored me. Because I went, yeah, you're right. That's what I'm shouting out. That little kid, I'm shouting out to everyone, I'm not thick. I can do everything. I can be Barnum. I can 
do those scripts. I can learn that. I can dance. I can sing. I'm not thick. (laughs) And it's taken me 50 years to sort of uh, come to terms with that. And I look at my act, uh, and there's loads of bits in my act that are very complicated, very complicated. To You know, like I would sit down and learn it, you know, like in the opening, I always go, well, I enjoy the show because I do feel that this show falls between the ethereal quality demanded by the intellectuals and cultural necessity of the urban lifestyle for which you go, because it's a show of participant elimination of an assessment place with unconstrained information in the various diverse categories, culminating in a show where the urban superiority. And I would just throw that away. Or, uh, <laughs> But I know what it is now. Because ever since, I know what it is. I'm saying, I'm not sick. You're definitely you know? not Look at that. I've got, I, just, I know, and that, I think that's really interesting. And I think to my core, that's what has driven me. And it took uh, more slipsage, you know, me sort of reading an article about Elton John and then going in and going, well, what am I shouting at? He goes, well, you're shouting at, you're not sick, and you're not sick. And, uh, and that's always been, uh, I think, a real dr- absolute to my core driving So force. interesting, without the dyslexia, without being made to feel that you were sectioned off in the, in the, in, in the dunce corner of the classroom, would you be who you are? Not in a million years. So it's become almost a superpower. Uh, uh, absolutely. Wow. You know, and I do look at life uh, slightly differently. And I know whenever I've, uh, like when I was doing the Brian Conley show, and you'd have scripts come in, or even like in EastEnders or anything, I can always visualise it. And I remember script writers would go, yeah, well, how about you do And i go, no, no, we'll maybe swap that round and do that there and how about that there. And I could, I can always see it like a like Tetris, you know, yeah. like a, you know, and that, that that's something that always surprised me that other people can't. I'm going, well, something can't. Um, also, learning stuff, I have to learn reams, and I've never had an issue with that. I think uh, my problem is, uh, uh, when I was a kid, I would write phonetically, and it was just that one little obstacle that made people go, oh, it's fake, because he won't, he can't learn it, you know, he can't learn how to write. Probably just that simple thing uh, was the one little moment that changed my life forever and uh, and made me what I am. And uh, my God, I embrace it. I embrace being dyslexic. My my uh, Both my girls are dyslexic. You know, uh, uh, one, Amy, the eldest one, who works for Everyman Cinema, she's part of the events team putting on all these. She um, is, is really, you know, she had to get help. She had to have someone read stuff. But they love her there. She's been there for God knows how long. She's wonderfully creative. Mm. Uh, and that's what, uh, you know, and a lot of companies are employing dyslexic people because, you know, they, they look at things just uh, out of the box. You know. Mate, go to Silicon Valley. That is full of people that are on varying scales of a spectrum. Because yes. we're not all, we shouldn't all be able to do the same things the same ways. That that doesn't make sense. How does the world work mm. like that? Why should we all be the same? Surely we should celebrate the difference. I think that, yeah, of course, as you know, Kate, they are embracing it much more now. But in the uh, 60s and 70s, no. oh, no, if you didn't go in that little box, that was well, it. you were difficult, you right? You were a difficult child. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Brian Connolly will persist in being the joke of the class. And we'll knock it on with his work. That's what I've got a school with Sean Ryder on the show talking about his very late in life diagnosis of um, ADHD. And his his children were diagnosed mm. first. And then he thought, that sounds a bit like a bit of me, actually. I'm going to have a look at that. And, and has come to realise that actually the only time he felt 
normal was on heroin. When he felt, he said, the only time I felt like I was in the same place as everyone else was when I was on heroin. That's how out of sorts he felt with the rest of the rhythm of the world. Isn't that extraordinary? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Are you, are you saying I've got to go on heroin? No, I'm saying do not go on heroin. Let me repeat that. Do not take heroin. No. I, no, Sam, I was right. Mate. Just say no. <laughs> We've had him on the show as well. <laughs> oh, brilliant. We have, yeah. It's interesting talking about those stage school days. He was talking at, we, we re reunited the cast of Grange Hill for a Christmas episode. Oh, brilliant. Um, and they were talking about, you know, those stage school days. Like, And, Ad, and Adam Woodyat's been on as well, talking about, you know, because he was part of, you know, the really early iteration of Sylvia's, Sylvia Young. And he was the, it was the same. It was like there was a handful of kids because there were a handful of schools and you all worked. And then suddenly when you became yeah. adult actors and you stopped working, you're like, hang on a minute. <laughs> Where's all the gigs? But you were obviously all coming into a workplace totally prepped. You are the Swiss army knives of variety, right? And then when you land shows like, let's, let's maybe go and look at some of the shows that really changed the way people saw you. Not audiences, because I think audiences have always loved what you've served up. But the business, mm -hmm. Jolson. Jolson was your mic drop moment. Yeah, it? yeah, 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 yeah. That 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 really did uh, tell everyone that uh, that I, I I could play with the big boys, you know. And and in his day, he was the first superstar, you know. He was it was the first look at uh, the first, you know. He done the first Sunday concert, the first talkie, the first album, the first single to make a, 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 a make a million dollars. Um, and we had to show that. But of course, in his era, the man done blackface, and that's very wrong, and we know that. Uh, but it was something that I had to really look into, you know, to sort because of, I was not happy with that. But he did it, and uh, you know, we uh, twenty five years ago, maybe thirty years ago, when we did it, it was a moment uh, that we had to acknowledge. But we moved on, you know. Uh, we we really spoke about the movies. Uh, and everything else that you did. But, but you couldn't have told uh, a story to say, without including that, could you? No, absolutely. And I used to say to people, do you think I enjoy putting that stuff on? Do you honestly think I enjoy it? And I've got, it goes in my ears and the back of my neck. It's horrible. I hate it. But it's something that, uh, you know, 30 years ago we had to address, but then talk about the albums. Uh, he was like the first, he was the first person to ever do a Sunday concert on Broadway because he wanted all the other stars to see how good he was. You know what I mean? Really? That's he was hell total, of ego. Oh, he was, oh God. He would write, he would nick people's jokes and then send them a writ, get his lawyers on them saying, you're nicking my material. That's what he was like. I mean, the man was, and we showed that, warts and all, we showed this, you know, this ego, this man, you know, and of course later on in his life when his career was down the pan and and then he latched onto his wife, Ruby Keeler, uh, for a while. Uh, everything was there, you know. It wasn't the black and white minstrel show, that is for sure. And the fact that we won an Olivier, it was recognised that what we were showing was the first superstar, you know. The Jolson Sings and Jolson Sings, again, those movies with Larry Parks, they were mega, you know, in their day. Uh, and the man done the first talking movie, you know, um, no, it was, which is it's, phenomenal. It's a story that, you, you, like I said, you couldn't have told that story without the difficult moments. No. How difficult no. was it for you to be cast in that role, though? Did Was that a role you had to fight for? No. No, they really wanted me to do it because uh, uh, I, because um, of my deep, drone 
you know, I, I could uh, sound like him. Uh, and of course, that was very important. Uh, so uh, it was it was something I wanted to do because me and my girl I'd done, and that was Robert Lindsay's show, and I wanted to do something where I could go, hey, this is my show, this is the one I created. It never, it, it never run after I left, and I was in it for three years. I was in it a long time. Yeah, it didn't, did it? It, it stopped. No, it, it never were. It was such a, a specific part, you know. Hey, you had to sound like him, look a bit like him. You had to be good at comedy, a bit dancing, good at good at acting. Um, so you know, uh, it was quite a specialised sort of part, and no one could feel that afterwards. So. Uh, so uh, that was, you know, quite sweet. <laughs> More than, uh, <laughs> they yeah. couldn't get anyone else. But, you know, it was definitely the moment where people, and then, of course, we won an Olivier. Uh, that was the moment where, oh, my God, because Jack Tinker said, uh, and he was like the critic then, he said, I came to wince, I stayed to cheer, I left the theatre in awe of the man. You know, and that was uh, that was his write up. You know, and uh, I'd walk a million miles to see this show, um, wow. and and it was yeah. I've had a few good compliments. I had one from Bob Hope when I I done a show with him. Bob Hope came to see me and me and my girl, and he said, uh, "How old are you?" And at the time I was thirty, and uh, he said, "Well, let me tell you, my boy, you got it all." And that was from Bob Hope. Wow. Jackie Mason, Jackie Mason came to see me in Jolson. And uh, he said, uh, he came back afterwards and he said, he came in the room and of course all night I've been talking like Jolie, you know, so I, I can't do it now. My voice isn't that raspy uh, as it used to be, but so I got that deep sort of voice, you know, hey, how you doing? Uh, and then he, I, he came in the room afterwards and I went, oh, hello, Jackie, you know, he, went, he said, why am I here? I said, well, I believe you wanted to meet me. Why do I want to meet you? Because I, I was the guy who played out Jolson. You played out Jolson? I go, yeah, you played out Jolson. I said, yeah. You played out, Johnson? I said, yeah. He said, I can't believe it. He said, I have to sit down. He said, you were no right. You have no right to be that good in front of me. <laughs> he said, when I, and this, he said, when I watched you, I felt like a plumber's mate. And that was Jackie Mason. I mean, wow. uh, yeah. And Tom Cruise came and Nicole Kidman. That's another long story. No, I've got time bit. for the Tom Cruise yeah. and Nicole Kidman. Come uh, on, bring it. Well, Nicole Kidman and the mum and dad we found out were big Jolson fans so uh, they came and we uh, we heard that Nicole Kidman was coming with her mum and dad so I said to my wife I said oh Nicole Kidman's coming in you know he said if your Tom Cruise is here give us a ring anyway <laughs> I love that she do, wouldn't bother to sleep the ass for Nicole Kidman but oh, no. little Tom Cruise she'll jump she'll jump yeah. off a sofa for him <laughs> oh no so I'm looking out and and then it gets back, Tom Cruise is in, Tom Cruise is in. So I ring Tom Cruise, oh my God, I'm jumping in the cab, I'm going to be there. Uh, and then in the interval, I get this message, um, Tom and Nicole would love to see you after the show. Oh, tell them I'm busy. No. So anyway, they came back. Anyway, Anne-Marie is talking with Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman uh, on one side of the dressing room. I am with Tom Cruise, uh, Nicole Kidman's mum and dad. I, oh, I can't get, I want to get over there. I can't get over there. Anyway, eventually he come over. And uh, he was very complimentary. And then uh, he goes, that's a lovely picture of a house. And I had a house. And I went, yes, that's my house. And whenever I feel a bit down, I always go, Bright, that's what you're paying for. That's what you're paying for. <laughs> um, I said, I said, I've even got a pool room. I've got a pool. Do you play pool? And I didn't know he'd done that film with uh, Steve McQueen, didn't he, where he was a hustler. That's right. So, um, what was it called? You know, so 
Do you, I, I can't oh. remember. I can't remember. I can't remember. You're going to have to Google Tom, it. Right, hold on, I'm going to Google it. Tom Cruise. Cool, Google it. Paul. He was a pool player, wasn't he? Mm. Uh, uh, hustler, American. No, the colour of money. The colour of money. Yeah. So he goes, yeah, I played a little bit. I was like, oh, right, okay. Um, then he said, uh, oh, that's right. I love this one. So I said, um, so Nicole, uh, so because I don't live far from Pinewood Studios, I only live up the road. And he said, that's lovely. Out. I said, well, you know, I'm only up the road from Pinewood Studios, you know. Um, where, where, where do you stay? Because he was doing uh, Eyes Wide Shut, doing that film with Nicole Kidman. And he said, uh, oh, we, we commute from in town. And I went, because well, that could be an hour. I mean, do you have to do that all the time? And Nicole Kidman was sitting over there. And I went, why do you have to do that? And he sort of went, you know, like this sort of... It's like, her. You know, like, <laughs> like, yeah, I know, this is Tom Cruise, Mission Impossible, man, sort of going, like, you know, it's not nothing to do with me, but I'm sort of under the farm and I've got to do it. And that was really funny. Then I said, uh, then Anne-Marie was pregnant and uh, I said, uh, she went, he said, oh, I hear your wife's pregnant. Yeah, that's right, Tom. I'm not firing blanks. I didn't know that he's adopted his children. <laughs> Oh, God. <laughs> so I'm now put my foot totally in it. Then I say to him, I don't know how, I say, uh, you know, if somebody, I don't know how oh he got God. onto it, but I showed him. He's never going to come to a house and pay Paul. I've got a tattoo on my bum. I've got, and I've had it since I was about 23, I've got a no entry sign tattooed <laughs> on my bum. I actually have. You haven't really. I'll show you that, Kate. Okay. Yeah, Oh my god, you have! <laughs> so, How drunk were you when you that, got that? I was about twenty-three. I showed him that. He didn't find that funny. He didn't. No, yeah, I did. And then I go to him. Listen, before you go, Tom, I just want you to know. Uh, what is it? If you fancy a foursome, I'm up for it, and I know Anne Marie doesn't mind. <laughs> <laughs> and that was it he left he had the right ache and he couldn't wait to get out of the place so there was a man who was potentially going to be my best friend but within about typically me four minutes I've completely and utterly ruined the situation oh with Tom you could Cruise. have been the next Simon Pegg until you got I your ass out and invited him for a foursome and told him that you were basically firing no blanks unlike his good self <laughs> And did he play Paul? Do you play Paul? Do you play Paul? Yeah, you know. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's a bit like saying, do you do your own my... stunts? I know, I know. So that was my Tom Cruise moment, and that was Jolson, and uh, yeah. And we went to Canada with it. That was amazing. But then I became, like, the world's greatest impersonator of Al Jolson, and then I went, no, nah, I've never done it for that. I'm not. I'm not an impersonator. I'm. Uh, we're telling his story, yeah, but um, I, I, you know. So I, it was time to move away, and I'd done that for about two and a half, three years. Yeah, yeah. that was a long run, that's wasn't same, it? In one role, yeah, that's a long run. It was. Yeah. It was. Yeah. I hope that you're going to so, tell some of these uh, stories when you go out on your third farewell tour. I do. Uh, what I do is um, right at the beginning of the night, I I tell the front row that they've all got to ask me questions. You, you've all got a one question to ask me. 
so think of it. And I'm not joking. You've got two hours. So you've got the interval to think of it. And you can ask me absolutely anything. And I will try and answer it honestly. Um, and that really opens it up yeah. in the second half. So as we wind, wind the show up near the end. And what I've introduced this time, because my daughter's doing it with me loose, she's going to conduct this sort of bit and I'm going to sit there and she's going to get questions. Oh. And what I love about that is you never know where it's going to go because I've done that quite a while now. And I, I think it's an age thing because I genuinely don't care what they ask me, you know, or, or where it's going to go. I'll even talk about uh, suffering, you know, because so often they go, you're so confident. Do you get nervous? And I talk about the time when my dad died and I, I had to work through something from anxiety and, and, and I would say depression as well. Uh, and, and I always get wonderful comments about that because I always say, if what I'm about to say helps just one person in this audience, then uh, this is a good moment and uh, loads of people can relate to that. But I'll talk about anything yeah, because uh, I'm old. Literally, you cannot be cancelled. Well, you can. You can always be cancelled, but you just yeah. don't care. No, no. Right, thank you so much for finding the time. Good luck with the next chapter, whatever that looks like. Um, it's lovely to catch up with you. Give your brother my very best. Oh, thank you, Kate. And I love listening to the podcast. It's so good. And, and you are so good. You know, you make it so uh, easy. And uh, you just, uh, you know... You're good. Thank you. That means a bunch coming from you. It really does. If you want to see Brian live on his third farewell tour, tickets are on sale right now and he'll be performing up and down the length and breadth of the nation. And for more chats with some of his fellow EastEnders castmates, we've got Martin Kemp, Casey Ainsworth, Joe Swash, Charlie Brooks, Adam Woodjet, and Emmon Barton in our back catalogue. And if you fancy checking in with the Nolans, who we went on tour with many moons ago, they're there too. So dive in, my friends. Wrap your ears around whatever takes your fancy. I'll be back on Tuesday with a little something from the cellar. Until then, thanks so much for your company. White Wine Question Time is a Stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network. Botox Cosmetic, Autobotulinum Toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.